Shalom. You know, in Judaism, the learning process is a very important part of life. And it's an important part of transmitting the knowledge of Judaism from generation to generation. And of course, throughout the centuries, we have great teachers. We've had wonderful rabbis. But there's been a unique type of teacher that is not talked about too often, but nevertheless deserves a lot of attention because it's a way of communicating ideals and values and principles and life itself in a beautiful and most pleasant manner. And that is what's called in the Hebrew the Magid. Now the Magid is a name we're going to go into a little bit because we have with us somebody who has written many books about the Magid. I want to introduce him because we're going to have a very interesting time learning about the power of a story. Because a story, of course, communicates sometimes much greater than the greatest of lessons. We have with us today Rabbi Pesach Kron. Rabbi Kron, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. And, of course, uh, you've been involved for many years in writing about the Magid. Your main profession, I should say, is a fifth-generation moil or a ritual circumciser, which, of course, you're well-known for, and you wrote a book about the circumcision process as well. But today we're going to concentrate on this very interesting sidelight, I guess, of yours, about introducing people to the beauty of a Jewish story. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into this yourself. Okay. Um, a Magid, as you say, is a storyteller. As a matter of fact, in the Pesach Seder, one of the uh, points that we say, we say Kadesh, Urchatz, uh, Karpas, Yachatz, then Magid. Magid is the time when you tell the story of everything that happened in the Exodus, when the Jews were in Egypt, and when they left. Now, over the years, there were people who would come to a community, and they would be like a guest lecturer, and their purpose, or their focus was to find out what was going on in the community, and how they, as uh, speakers could improve, get everybody to be together and to inspire those people. And of course, they had tremendous power in those oh, days. Oh, they had also. tremendous power. Because people were you to hear your rabbi every yes. single week is right. working. But when but comes these to people town. who came, they were extraordinary speakers. Right. And probably the most famous was the Dubna Magid. Right. And he came from this town, and he would travel all over the place, always giving a lesson, but giving a lesson through the story. So he wasn't only a storyteller. The purpose of the story was to bring across the point. And somebody once asked the uh, Dubna Magad, he said to him, how do you always have the right story? So he said, I'll tell you a story. And this is the story that he told. It's a great story. He said that there was a fellow that was once walking, and he was walking in a forest, and he sees this little kid, he's shooting arrows, and everyone is dead center. He can't believe such a marksman, this little boy, is. everyone is perfect. So he goes over to the little boy, and he says to him, I don't understand, you're such a, where did you learn to shoot arrows so perfectly? He said, no, you don't understand. First I shoot the arrow, and then I draw the mark right around it. And so therefore he said, that's what I do. I take stories that I see out of life, and then I apply them to everything. It's so interesting. It, There's also a story from one of the Rebbes, from the Lubavitcher Rebbes, that what happened was there was a person who had talked to the Rebbe and told him a personal situation, and then at the next public assembly, the Rebbe was talking, and it was a situation which this person thought he was talking about his situation and revealing it to the whole of the audience. So he came to the Rebbe afterwards, and he was very upset. He said, the Rebbe, how could you do such a thing? He said, listen, I was not talking about your situation at all. I was talking about something completely different. But you know, I'm a hat maker. I make hats. And just like when you walk into a hat store, you can try in all different hats, and you might take one out that happens to fit you. So you found the hat that fits you. That's right. But nevertheless, I make them of all types. Right. So what, what happened was that over the years, there were people that were known as different Magidim and different communities. 
And over the last, let's say, 40 years, there was a Magid of Yerushalayim. His name was Rabbi Shalom Shradron. He from was the city of Jerusalem. from the city of Jerusalem. And he was a tremendous speaker. He spoke all over Israel. Everybody knew him. And what happened was that uh, my, I had a cousin who was in Israel who went to hear this Magid numerous times. And he put it on tape. And in those days, they didn't have the cassette tape recorders. They had right, reels, right. R-E-E-L, real tapes. And he sent some to my father. And my father was enamored. He couldn't get over what... This is like the old-time market. Where is this person from? This is like from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, the 60s. Right, exactly. Right. And my father said, if this man ever comes to America, I would want that he should be in my house. Because I, I'm so enamored. This man has to be in my home. So what happened was, I happened to be in Israel in 1965, and uh, I met some friends, and uh, new friends, and I, I invited them, if they ever come to America, that they should come to my house. Sure enough, this fellow, Rafi Brenner, sitting at my house on Shabbos. Uh, his father's a famous eye doctor, Dr. Brenner. And, and Rafi's in the house, and my father says to him, do you know the Maggot of Yerushalayim? He says, do I know? Everybody knows the Maggot of Yerushalayim. He, everybody loves him. Everybody flocks him. Friday night, he has hundreds and hundreds of people come to him. So my father says to him, you know, if he would ever come to America, we would love that he should... He's coming, he's coming tomorrow. So I'm like, well, tomorrow? What do you mean? Why is he coming tomorrow? He says, why do you think I came? I work for an organization called Chinuch which is for religious schools in Israel. And Rabbi Shradron is making his first maiden trip. To, he's coming to America for the first time. And he's like going to speak and benefit of our schools. So my father says, we, he's got to be by us. He says, why? Well, he can't be by you. Because uh, he's a, he, they have he's a place for him. He's, right. he's got a full schedule and he's got a place already in Borough Park in Brooklyn. My father says, there's no such thing. Now listen to this. I cannot, I still can't get over what my father did. Matashaba, Saturday night, my father took his own bed and put it upstairs on the third floor and put up a second bed there in case he figured Rabbi Shradron was probably coming with somebody else. He put a table, he put a desk and a telephone up in a room. Maybe this man will come to him. And what happened was, God helps those who help themselves that there was a tremendous storm in Israel and terrible weather. The plane couldn't leave for two days. All the, the airports were closed. Really? And then finally what happened was on Tuesday when he finally came, by that time they had already, the apartment that was ready for him in Brooklyn had been given away. So now I remember I came, my grandfather, my father, and my two brothers, we all came to the airport to meet this fellow who I had seen. I had seen him speak in, in the summer when I was there, but my father never saw him. And he comes to the airport and this whole entourage of people meets him and, and uh, he, he doesn't know who these people are. So he goes to Rafi Brun. He says, who are these people? He says, well, they would like you to stay by him. He said, can you eat there? Are they kosher? He says, yeah, I was there for Shabbos. He says, okay, I just found out that I don't have an apartment. Good, so I'll go, I'll go to them. So I, so I remember, I remember, I'll never forget. We're driving from Kennedy Airport to on the Vanderbilt Expressway to my home in Kew Gardens. And Rabbi Shadron says to my father, he says, uh, you know, I don't know you and, and you don't know me. Like, why, why are you doing all this? And my father brought him into the house and showed him the room and showed him everything that he set up. So my father said, maybe you don't know me, but I know you. And he put on the tape recorder. And Rabbi Shadron was amazed. He couldn't believe how in America, it's not like today that the communication is so open. He couldn't believe, how did you get these tapes? This is my voice. These are my speeches in Israel. And my father said, I have a nephew that used to follow you in different places. And he sent it. And, and we know your stories and we'd like you to be here. And 
Would you believe he stayed for six months? Really? He st- and he became part so of the family. you collected his stories? So what happened was, uh, my father had a tape recorder on the whole time. Right. <laughs> and and the, every time Rabbi Shradran came down to eat breakfast, lunch, or whatever the tape recorder was on, he would come at night and my father would follow him around. I was in school in those days. <laughs> but the thing was like this. What happened was, it, it's not to be believed, my father was not an outwardly emotional person like I am. He was more quiet, more reserved, and... And but he got to love this man, and this man loved him so they were like brothers, to the point when he went back after the Passover holiday, he went back to Eretz Yisrael, and he said, "I can't go from from the diaspora to to Israel by plane. I got to go by boat. I got to thaw out. I, this transition is too much for me." So he went by boat. Was sitting Shabbos at the table, and my father says to us. He says, wouldn't it be great if I would go to Israel and meet Rabbi Shadran coming off the boat? And we said, what? Ah, but you don't even have a passport. And he said, no, but I, I, I want to do it. And if my father wanted to do something, there was no way to stop him. So he and my mother, they got passports, and they went and they went to Israel. They flew to Israel, and they were introduced by my nephew, by my cousin, my father's nephew, to Rebetzin Shadran, who was going now to go to Haifa to meet her husband. My father was a very sensitive person, and he realized that the family hadn't seen their father and and the, and the wife right. and the husband hadn't seen each other for six months. months. Right. So he decided he'll go with them, but he'll stand back. So he stands back, and the Rebetzin, when she sees her husband, she says to him, after they greeted each other and they greeted his children, he said, your best friend came to see you. So Rabbi Shadron said, my best friend is in America. <laughs> and then he walked out, and they embraced, and they and they held each other, and they cried and, and they spent the next two weeks together. Very but nice. what happened was that when my father came back from that trip, that's when he got sick. And he became very, very ill. And eventually, he passed away from that illness. And the Talmud says that God always sends the remedy before he sends the illness. And the remedy for my family was Rabbi Shadron. Because then he came back after my father was gone already uh, a few months. And he came back during that year. And I'll never forget, we all went to the boat to see him. And he, again, he came by boat, we my mother and, and my brothers and sisters, and we all went to greet him. And we were waiting to see what would he say to my mother. This was the wife of his best friend mm-hmm. who he didn't think that he would never see again. They thought they would have a long, long relationship. And I wrote about this in the introduction. When he saw my mother, he he just sat down on a chair in that terminal and he started crying. And those tears, I wrote that the man of a million words had none, but the tears on his face that showed that he related to our problem. And what I understood afterwards is when he was seven years old, he lost his father. And he always, always was sensitive to a widow. And that's why he came back, because he knew what his mother went through when she was a widow. And now he understood what we were going through as orphans. And again, he stayed in the house, and he literally became like my virtual grandfather. And we became very, very close. Interesting. And he he said to me, he said to me, because he knew that I had to leave the yeshiva at that time, and that's when I became a moil. I had learned mila from my father, but now I had to support my mother and my six younger brothers and sisters. I became a full-time moil. And he said to me, God will take care of you. Because you gave up everything, you gave up on your learning, so that you should be able to support your family. And <clears throat> he gave me tremendous encouragement. And I used to go around with him, and we became very close. And he told me all his stories. And 
So where did he get all of his stories from? Over the years, he had written them down, and he had heard them from many people. And years had gone by when he would come back and forth, and I never even occurred to me to write his stories. But after I wrote the book on circumcision, Bris Mila for Art Scroll, I called Rabbi Shadron in Israel, and I said, you know that you speak Yiddish. That's your primary language. But the young people in America, they don't speak Yiddish. Why don't you let me write down your stories? And I'll and we'll be able to put a book out together. Right. And he thought that was a great idea. And there was one story that he told. I'll never forget the first time he came to America. He told this story that um, really turned me on to him because this is the type of story that a Magid tells that everybody can relate to. And I'll never forget. It was about himself. He told the story. He was sitting and writing one day in his home. And his wife runs in and she says, a little boy, Meirke, fell and he got cut over the eye. We've got to take him to the doctor. His parents are nowhere to be found. So he, so he was a heavy man, Rabbi Shadron, but he stopped his writing and he ran out in his shirt sleeves and, 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 and without a jacket. And he picked up this child and he's running up the hill. And in Israel, when anything happens, you know, a big crowd follows. All the little kids, what happened was Meirke was, he was um, uh, a thin boy. And a heavy boy was sitting on top of him like the horse on a carriage. This kid should have been the rider. But, you know, the fat guys, they take advantage. So he sat on this, on this little boy and this guy fell face first on the ground and he got cut. So now he's running, holding this little Meirke. And coming down the hill, down the hill, she didn't realize, this old woman, she didn't realize that it was her grandson. But she sees Rabbi Shadron running with a child. And he's huffing and puffing. And she says to him, Rabbi Shadron, take it easy. God will help. Take it easy. Don't be so excited. Well, what's the rush? God will help. Don't be so excited. And he told me he was just waiting to see what she'll say when she realizes it's her grandson. And then as she, he's going up the hill and all the kids are following and she's coming down the hill, she realizes there's a second. Wait a second. Rabbi Shadron doesn't have a son that age. So she says, oh, don't worry. The Abishu will tell from the Abishu will tell from God will help. God will help. Don't worry. Stop getting so excited. And he's smiling to himself, running with this child towards the doctor. And once she sees it's her son, she's yelling, Merica! Merica! Look what happened! So one ye- woman yells from upstairs, Don't worry, God will help. David Shivatel for David Shivatel for everything will be fine. <laughs> so Rabbi Shwadron always says from that lesson, When it's my America, the whole world is turning over. Right. But if it's somebody else's problem, don't worry, David Shivatel for God will help. That reminds me that's the difference between minor surgery and major surgery. Yeah. Minor surgery is when it happens to you, and major surgery is when it happens to me. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's exactly, that's a great line. That's a great addendum to that story. <laughs> but you see, that's a typical story that he would tell, that everybody gets a laugh, but everybody gets the message. Right. In other words, it's yeah. a way of communicating important uh, principles. A very important And sometimes, you know, parents, of course, sometimes grab for some meaning, something to be able to give their children. And very often, they fumble, and they don't know what to say, and they'll say it the wrong way, and they'll do it in a disciplinary way. If they had a story on oh, their fingertips... To true. be able to use, hey, it's listen, so true. let's sit down and read this story, whether it be from uh, Chicken Soup or whether it be from Small right. Miracles or whether it be from any or of these the places. Books. Or the Maggie books, right. of course, that's right. right. Then, you know, it, it's a way of communicating about having courage in life, about exactly. how to take care of certain personality defects even about exactly. how to and look at another that's what person all these books are about now the first book that I wrote was only his stories that's why it's called The Maggot Speaks that's the first one here okay. and this is called The Maggot Speaks and this is the picture of Rabbi Shvadron speaking right. at, uh, this happened to be at a bar mitzvah it happened to be somebody shot these shots and the idea is uh, in the beginning in the middle he's laughing but then at the end it's a powerful punchline because he brings across the point right. and he tells the, now after I wrote this book it's about a hundred stories I figured what else is there to write there's nothing finished. I took all his best stories. Then people said to me, hey, wait a second. And I never forget, Rabbi Shermer was in South Africa. And he said, you know, I was in a classroom and the Rebbe, their teacher was teaching the kids from your book. You have an obligation. You've got to get more. I said, where am I going to get stories? 
He said, you've got to ask other people. Go back to Rabbi Shadron. Maybe you'll get more from him. Go to other rabbis. Everybody's got a story. And then that's what happened. I started going to different people. And then once I wrote a story, people said, hey, wait a second. If this guy can write a story, maybe he can tell a story. And then I started a whole new career. I never, I, I, I always felt that I could speak, but I never thought that I could be a public speaker. But people started calling in every place that you go, whether it was in England, in Switzerland, in Israel, in Canada, in Cleveland, in Miami. Everybody's got a story. But sure. the point is, you got to listen to all the stories. Not all of them are good, but but you got to listen because you never know when that one story comes, and it, it's right. just so unbelievable. And some of them are so powerful, obviously. Oh, wow! This, Tell this, us, share, share with us a story that you you consider, or that you've seen the effect of. Okay, this is the, one of the greatest stories that I've ever told. Okay. And as a matter of fact, this story is so powerful that I know that it's been on the internet in so many different sites since I printed it in, in the most recent book Echoes of the Magid and Chicken Soup for the Father's Soul just printed it as really? well yeah they, they, I don't know how they got a hold of it somebody somebody in Israel had, had sent it to them and, 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 they, and they printed it okay, it's, let's it's just it. unbelievable this is great now this there is a school in Brooklyn called Hush now this school is for children that are learning disabled and what happened was there's, a, there's some kids that go to that school they'll always be in that school some are mainstream to other schools and some are partly in that school and then in regular school over the weekend. So this little boy, um, Shia, his name is, and he was in this school, Hush, and he goes to a regular school, Darky Torah, on Sunday. And the father, who, the father of this boy, very prominent fellow, um, he, at the Hush dinner, said, he wants to ask the question, he said, where's God's perfection? Everything that God does is so perfect. How come my child is learning disabled and he doesn't understand like every other child? Where's God's perfection? He said, I'll show you God's perfection. And he tells this story. He brought his son to the regular school on a Sunday afternoon. And the kids were playing a ball game. They're playing a baseball game. And Shia wants to join. But it was in the middle of the game. And Shia's father told me. He said, I knew my son can't hold a bat straight. So how, how's he, how are we going to get him involved? So he goes over to one of the kids in the field. He says, you think my Shia could get into the game? So he says, look, it's the seventh inning. We're losing by five runs anyway. Put him in short center field. We'll let him get up you know, once in the ninth inning. Fine. Sure enough, God helps. The team scores a whole bunch of runs. Now it's the bottom of the ninth inning. It's two outs. The bases are loaded. And Shia is supposed to be up. If you're that team, you're going to put up Shia? Well, no, everybody wants to win the game. Nobody wants to put up Shia. But they put up Shia anyway. And the pitcher realized that Shia does not hold the bat. So he walks in a few steps and he lobs the ball in so that Shia should be able to hit it. Really? And Shia swings and misses. So then one of his teammates comes up and holds the bat together with him. And the pitcher lobs the ball in and together they hit a little grounder to the pitcher and the pitcher could have thrown to first the game would have been over but instead he takes the ball and he throws it way to right field and everybody starts yelling Shia run to first Shia run to first China's life never ran to first the right fielder gets the ball he understands in a second what the pitcher meant to do he could throw it a second and get the kid out but he understood right away what the pitcher meant to do. So he takes the ball and he throws it way over the third baseman's head. And everybody's yelling, Shia run to second! Shia run to second! Shia, and his life never ran to second. He runs to second and the shortstop turns him around. He says, Shia run to third! Meanwhile, all the kids are running around the bases. And he said, the father says, as the Shia was rounding third, everybody's yelling from both teams, Shia run home! Shia run home! And they pick him up. He hits the winning grand slam. And the father says, that day, that's the perfection. Those 18 kids, they reach perfection because they understood that a child like that also wants attention, also wants to be recognized, also wants to feel that somebody's special, that he can be special. That's beautiful. And the father said, if those children can reach perfection, then we can do it. And that story is called Perfection at the Plate. 
because they reached a perfection. And what I bring out when I tell this story is there are a lot of people out there who don't have your family, don't have your friends, don't have your talent, and don't have your funds. But they're also people. They also want you should say good Shabbos to them in shul. They also want to be recognized as people. And that's what we have to do. Not look at those who have more than us, but look at those who have less than us. And those children, they taught us what it means to recognize somebody who has less. Mm-hmm. And that's Definitely. one of the most powerful stories I've ever told. That's beautiful. But you know, those are the types of things that even for children also. That's right. such a beautiful example. As, as a matter of fact, I'll show you, you something sit there very for, interesting. You can sit there all day and you can tell them you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do this and this is the right way to behave. But when you hear a story, right. it's, it's worth, what did it say? A picture's worth a thousand words, right. but the story's probably worth a million words. And I'll show you something interesting. After I wrote these books, and, and I'm always trying to write new ones, so somebody came over and said, why don't you write for children? I said, I can't write for children. You know, I write for, for teenagers, for adults. That's, you know, it's a different talent. Right. But I have a daughter who's an, a, a wonderful teacher. She teaches fifth grade, and she's a good writer. So I said to her, Chaviva, why don't you, maybe you could try to write these stories to, on a children's level. And, and she did it. She took some of the stories and she wrote it and it was printed by Art Scroll, Magid Stories for Children, and it did very well. And then she wrote a second book. She took more of the stories. And this story that we're just talking about right here is called Winners. And that's, and, and that's, uh, you know, she renamed it and right. she wrote it for children. And it's about, just here, here's this little boy, as you can see, batting at the plate. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's that message. And so this is called More Magid Stories for Children. So I was very proud of my daughter that, uh, that she wrote that book. And um, those, now, those okay, are the now, stories. This, of course, takes you um, to all over the world, not only, of course, as you say, to speak, but also to collect stories. Right. Do you find in different cultures, you find different emphasis, uh, different types of approaches? You go to Israel, you find one approach. Do you find any differences depending on the culture you're in? That's an interesting question. I don't think so because I think that a Jew, a good Jew, is a Jew with a heart. And every Jewish person, whether he's been in South Africa or in England or all the different places in Switzerland, they all have stories that are very meaningful. Of course, when you go to Europe, you hear a lot of Holocaust stories. And you hear, I, I just heard such a beautiful story. I don't know if we have time for another great Please, story. Go on, sure. is, I just heard this story just a few weeks ago. I was in Italy. There was a, uh, a family camp. A fellow from England had many families come together. And uh, that's their summer vacation. It was in the Italian Alps. It had nothing to do with Italy except the mountains were there. And uh, all these religious families came from England with their children. And a woman, Yochebet Khan, told me this story. Such a beautiful, touching story. But it Again, it's a European Holocaust story. And, and she said she was born in Amsterdam. And when she was three years old, she was separated from her parents because they knew that the Nazis were going to come. So a Gentile woman said to the parents, Shlomo and um, uh, I forgot her, Esther Levenberg, and said, let me take your child. I will hide her during this difficult period, and I promise you I'll bring her back to you or to a family member after when things settle down. And so she never saw her parents again because they were taken to concentration camps. But when she was 19, she met someone who knew her parents. And she said, you're that daughter of Shlomo and Esther Levenberg. I must tell you this story about your parents. She said there was a Friday morning when there was a roundup. And um, there was a roundup. And all the Jews were taken. All these Jews that were in hiding in Amsterdam. And they were all put on a certain train. And everybody took, I learned a new word, we call it a backpack, it's called a rucksack. A rucksack was things that people took as their final mementos that they were able to take. They couldn't take as much, a few belongings that they took, some pictures, some valuables or whatever. He said, we were all in that train together. And your father was there with your mother and 
all the Jews somehow all of a sudden they felt a freedom because if they everybody knew that they were Jews now there was no point hiding it and it was getting late it was Friday afternoon and it came time to daven the, to pray the mincha service the afternoon service now most of the men knew the afternoon service so they knew that by heart but then the Friday night service is a very beautiful service but not many people knew it by heart but your father knew it by heart and there's beautiful songs that they sing the L'chadaydi and he led us in the songs and it was so beautiful and so meaningful and then after the um, after the services, some people had some food. But Friday night we don't eat until we make kiddush, and we we have the blessing of the wine. And 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 nobody had wine. No, and how could a Jew eat Friday night mm-hmm. without making kiddush? And out of your mother's rucksack, she took two chalas. That's what her mother took when she was running. She didn't take diamonds. She didn't take jewels. She took the two chalas with her that she was baking that Friday morning. Unbelievable. And that's what your father made Kiddush on. Because the law is that if you don't have wine, you could make the Kiddush, you could sanctify the Shabbos on chalas. And your father sang the Kiddush on the chalas, and everybody shared whatever there was to eat. And that's a Jewish woman. She's running, and that was the last Shabbos she would ever have. That's what she wanted. Not jewels, not diamonds, the chalas. And that's such a beautiful... It shows what Shabbos is. It shows what a Jewish woman is. It shows, it shows where our priorities are. And these are the type of stories that I like to tell and that I have told. And, and, and hopefully it can, be, it can be to teach people what, what the meaning definitely, of Jewish life definitely. is all about. And the meaning of life itself. Right. Because, you know, you get into situations where it takes tremendous courage and you have a person who's, who's a hero in a very small way, perhaps. You don't have to right. be, be, and, be and, famous and, and, and right. be all over the place to be and, a hero. And, and that's why I think this book, Echoes of the Market, the most recent book that I wrote, is, is so popular because it's about the soldiers. You know, there's books about generals, and I have about the generals. You, so to speak, the generals, the rabbis, right. the teachers and all. But when you read stories about the soldiers and you think, why... That person could do that. I could do that. I'll give you a small example. I just heard a great story about Rabbi Palm. Rabbi Palm was the, the Rosh Hashiva of Torah Das. And his children, found one, they once found $5 in the street. Now, the Jewish law is that when you find something, if it has a significant sign to it, you've got to put it away because somebody can say, hey, wait a second, that's mine. It's, it's got a, a red color, a red stripe or something. But a $5 right. bill, you, it's yours. Sure. So he said to the children, we can't use it yet. Somebody feels bad that they lost this money. It's true. According to Jewish law, if you found the money, it's yours. Because how are you going to return it? Nobody can prove that it's theirs. But there's pain here. Somebody had a lot of pain because they lost this amount of money. Let's hold it for a few days. And once that person, wherever that person is, and they get used to the fact that they lost it and they don't feel that bad about it anymore, then we can use it. And that's a beautiful sensitivity. Of course, the law is that you can have the money and you can spend it. But when a father teaches sensitivity to somebody who doesn't even know, mm-hmm. and he teaches that to the children, that's well, parenting. And those are the type of stories I like to well, tell. Robert Carney, I want to thank you very much for Pleasure. sharing those stories. And Pleasure. if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what is your phone number? 718-846-6900. Okay. And whatever you do, 718-846-6900. Eight four six six nine zero. And of course, your books are available on the internet or on the internet through Artscroll, Masora Publications, or through me, Crone Moyle, and AOL.com. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, just don't so call me a storyteller because it, the idea is a storyteller is just telling stories. This is not Aesop's Fables. This is a person who uses a story as a vehicle to get a message. Very across. good. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Best of luck with you and in your continued success with writing these stories. Thank you. And for the rest of us who are not such great storytellers <laughs> or perhaps who haven't written books on stories. Have yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
fact is that there is a, a lesson here to be learned, I think, for all of us, and that is there are many ways to teach morals and ethics to our children, to our students, to anybody who we deal with on a daily basis. And sometimes the story is the most innocuous but the most powerful way of being able to do it. And, of course, there are many ways to get a point across, and all of us want to get points across in different situations, but let's try a way that really reaches into the heart of a person in a very unique sugar way. Sugar-coated medicine. Sugar-coated, but without the hard stuff, exactly. Right. And that's, uh, there's a way to do it. There's a world, there's a way. So in the meantime, go out there, do a mitzvah, do something good to make your world a better place. And we all have the ability somehow, somewhere, to make somebody smile, whether it be through a story or any of a number of other things. So go do it, because I know you can. Shalom. We'll see you. Who is the same as I give you love in a name of she?